And so at the height of my career, the best thing I've ever done, coming back after so many years of not winning a world title, finally here, you can have whatever you want. I mean, no, you can't. Welcome to Patent Pending, a show about the future of disc golf. I'm Jesse from Trash Panda, and on the show today, how a four-time world champion took matters into her own hands and became one of our sport's biggest advocates. Let me ask you a question. Who is the future of disc golf? I know it's kind of heady, but just think about it for a second. Who comes to mind? Who doesn't? In a podcast focused on conversations with changemakers in our sport, it was a question we couldn't help but ask, and Valerie Jenkins immediately came to mind as the person maybe most fit to answer that question. Because while I may have my own answers for who I believe the future of disc golf is, Valerie has basically devoted her life to the answer to that question. Growing up in what some call the first family of disc golf, Valerie was quick to become an incredibly decorated professional disc golfer. Starting with her 2004 Rookie of the Year title, she would go on to win four world championships, 16 major championships, two U.S. Women's Disc Golf Championships, 29 National Tour Championships, and last but certainly not least, she was the PDGA Player of the Year five times. Which is just insane to think about. But during the height of her career, and when she should have been on the top of the mountain, Valerie also experienced her lowest moments, being made by others to feel undeserving and unworthy. But I'm getting ahead of myself, and it's really her story to tell. So, let's go back to the beginning. Something I'm not shy about either is the fact that I wasn't into disc golf straight from the beginning. But my parents did discover the sport in the mid-80s, so basically right around when I was born. It's urban legend whether I was in my mom's belly and she was pregnant with me or she just had me. Things get a little blurry at that point. But my parents both got into the sport at the same exact time, right when the course was installed in our local town. Uh, And this course was about 15 minutes from where we lived. But my dad worked for the city of Medina. And so he was in the loop on whatever was going on with the the city parks. And he knew that this Frisbee golf course was being installed. Wow. And him and my mom, they were athletes, but they loved playing catch. They loved playing Frisbee. And so they immediately had to figure out what this sport was all about. And so they were some of the first people that came to the course after it was installed. And basically from there, history writes itself of them being involved in every chance they could get to them being the the people that are out of the course with the van, you know, opening up the back doors and selling discs to the, the locals that are coming by or running the league. And my mom was a huge, she was the maintenance crew. Of course, the city took care of the park, but my mom was that person that Mm. would manicure the heck out of the course. You know, wow, it was immaculate, uh, this course every year, just because my mom poured her heart and soul into making this course something that she was proud of. Yeah. So that's kind of how I was raised. I was raised with these two parents that were fully immersed in this competitive sport, this fun sport, spending a lot of their free time on the course. And that's basically where I spent my childhood, Hmm. but I'd be playing in the Creek or 
going to the 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 park and you know playing on the monkey bars or the swings and you know I was a kid I was a very young kid I'd play a little bit but just for fun with my dad like I would be his partner at a weekly doubles or just very casually and then I felt like once I got into school I wanted to do what my friends were doing and so hanging out at the park with my parents, that wasn't a cool thing to do. <laughs> I'd rather go and do whatever it was my friends were into, you know. And so that's kind of where things separated for a minute with me just, eh, disc golf, it's it's whatever. It's what my family does. It's not the cool thing at the moment. Yeah. But it wasn't until I was making my own friends in the sport, until I got my own driver's license and was able to drive to different courses that's when I really understood how cool the sport could be. And I could meet my own friends and travel to all these places. I got to see what my brother was doing and all the places he got to go. And so I think that's where wow. kind of went that separate path. But then I came around back to the beginning and go, all right, this sport is pretty damn cool. Yeah. And it, so you're, you get your driver's license, you're like 16, 17, leading into, I think you were rookie of the year, the year you graduated from high school. Yep. Yep. Is that correct? So you, you kind of dove in at that point. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, 2004, 18 years old. That's when I was really getting into it. And I knew I was good. Around 16 is when I really started playing tournaments. And I realized there's nobody really my age. I'm playing with women that are at least five, 10 years older than me, even in the amateur ranks. For sure. Um, but there were no junior girls playing at that time. And so uh, with my parents already going to the world championships, going to tournaments, you know, doing that whole thing, we knew that if I'm getting into the sport, we're going to go to the AM Worlds and go into the juniors division. And so I competed in 2001. It was 15 and under was hmm. the division of juniors that I competed in the first time, not knowing how I would end up, you know, never competing against somebody my own age ever before. Yeah. And yeah, I... I think there were four of us or maybe three of us in the division. And so I took it down that first year. And that's when I was like, okay, nice. well, compared to the other juniors in the world that are playing, you know, now I can see where I rank. Yeah. Between 2004 and maybe like 2006, because leading up to your first world's title in 2007, what was that? What were those early years like, 2004 to 2006-ish? I remember going to my guidance counselor at school and telling him my story and saying, hey, I am a wannabe or aspiring professional athlete. Yeah. I want to go play the sport of disc golf. I want to travel, but I know that school is important. So I want to figure out a way to do school while I'm on the road. And it just mm -hmm. wasn't a thing at the time to for yeah. online schooling. There weren't that many options for me to do both. He didn't leave me with a lot of options. So I went, all right, well, I'm going to go mm. down this career path that I know is right in front of me. I know that I can be confident that I'm going to go and play. And after seeing my brother go on tour and, and make a living out of it. So yeah, so I took a year off. I uh, said, yep, I'll get back to school at some point. But I went on the disc golf tour and a couple of years had passed then. It was a little bit of back and forth of me kind of juggling that idea of having to go to school and having something to rely on if the disc golf path didn't treat me as well as I'd hoped it would. So those are interesting years of getting out of 
high school and figuring that out. And for people listening today, I mean, I'm sure they're thinking of numbers that we're seeing today. But in terms of like tournament payouts and whatnot, it was you were making enough to maybe cover gas in the next entry fee. Yeah, that's what made it so important to travel to the bigger events to kind of risk a little bit more knowing that you're going to have a bigger field to play against and you're going to have a a bigger opportunity to have a a better payout. But yeah, as a aspiring pro, you're putting up these huge entry fees, hundred bucks, you're putting up this entry fee (laughs) and you're hoping for that return. You know, it is sort of gambling. It's a risk you're putting out there, but you're risking on, on yourself. And so it takes some time. You get beat up, not going to cash, 100% of the time, but then eventually you're going to learn from those experiences. And I remember if you got like $500, that was like everything back in the day. And that's kind of where, you know, being one of the first people making disc golf your career, that's where we started. That was the foundation. So we didn't expect any more than that. And it put more focus on having a good time and making sure we're enjoying what we're doing. Hmm. And we never looked at a paycheck being like the end all be all. It was, it's awesome that we're getting paid to do this for a living and we get to travel and we get to meet all these people. And and you create those relationships, you know, when you're traveling around the country and you're staying in somebody's driveway or sleeping on their couch for a week, it created who we all were you know, it, we fought harder for it and we it meant a lot more to us when we did get a bigger paycheck. Yeah. Wow. So 2007 comes up and you get your first world title and I think you string together three in a row. Is that correct? It is. Yeah. What was that like? <laughs> it was amazing to be at that point of, you know, tuning pro in 2004, winning some tournaments, placing well. And then chasing down my heroes, basically, at that time. You know, Juliana Corver was in the scene, Elaine King, Des Redding. And Des was really the one that was on the top of her game. Hmm. And she was the one that I was always just, oh, just second place, second place. And then it was, (laughs) oh, all right, I got a win on Des. Okay, now I know what it takes. And then you kind of just capitalize on those moments. And you have all this experience from those times that you've lost to now switch it over into this is how you win. And so, yeah, from 2007, kind of overcoming those fears or doubts or all the things that athletes have to deal with to get that first big win. And then it seemed things came a little bit easier. I was at the top of my game. Things seemed a little effortless. I think I remember you saying like in one of those worlds, you were just cashing like throw-ins left and right, or just massive circle two putts. Yeah. Which one was that? And what what happened there? Were you, was it, have you felt that? Were you just in that flow state? Yeah, 07, I had this insane round. Um, and it was during that time, Yeah, we had just gotten back from Japan. Weird timing to even have to go to Japan right before the world championships. So we were dealing with yeah. jet lag and all sorts of things. And I remember just really kind of putting myself in a moment where every morning I'd have a routine, you know, I was getting enough sleep, things were as they should be when you're preparing yourself to compete at the highest level. And I remember just going, all right, things aren't working. This routine's not working. I'm not 
I'm not breaking mm-hmm. through that barrier. I'm not shooting a great round. I'm just kind of middle of the pack. And I went, I'm just not enjoying myself. I'm not having a good time. And I remember going out, I think they had just done the, the field events and or like the finals for the field events and they were having a party and a yeah. band. And I was like, let me go out and just enjoy my time. Go see people break stay up a little routine. bit later. Yeah. yeah. Break that routine. I did get a good night rest, but then I, the next day I came out and I was like, all right, let's reset. And I just, anytime I could see the basket, I was throwing it in. And I think that was a really crazy moment where I kind of just stopped thinking too hard about it and just let my body do what it knows how to do. And yeah, yeah that was pretty insane. So fast forward to 2009, you get your world championships next to your brother, which is extremely unique. And we've talked about the fact that you grew up in like what, what some call the first disc golf family. What was that moment like for your family, taking down the worlds together for, for the whole family? I remember certain moments of the day. I had a pretty commanding lead even going into the final nine, I think. So we had our final nine and then I completed the tournament. I won my third world title. It was amazing. But I remember at the moment going, okay, thanks everybody, but I got to go catch my brother. He's starting his final nine right yeah. now and he could win worlds too. Like I felt like that was such a yeah. an incredible moment for our family to even have a chance to make that happen. Yeah. Brother and sister win in the same year. I don't know if it'll ever be done again. At this point, some might say you're you're in the height of your career. That 2009 to 2010, like you mentioned, is just everything. You're playing. You're in this state of just playing so well, and I'm sure there's ups and downs in there of of different tournaments and whatnot. But overall, it's it's the height of your career. But it wasn't all as glamorous as people might think because you've been you've been relatively open about this. But your sponsorship with Innova wasn't as supportive as you as they were of your MPO counterparts. Would you mind kind of getting into that a little bit and talking about your experience at that point? So even after winning three world titles, I was still in a position where I didn't feel like I was the top dog. There were so many other women on the team who had been a part of the team for so many years. You know, Hmm. Juliana, she's got five world titles. Yeah. I'm not going to ask for more than what Juliana's getting. You know, Des, she had three. I was never, I never felt like I was in the place where I could get more than Des. Once I won that third, I'm thinking, okay, now I got to figure out what's going on on top of this mountain peak and why Juliana has her name on a disc, but Des doesn't, you know. And during that time, you know, of course, my brother and I were, current world champions together and all of a sudden he's the only one that gets offered a disc deal with his name on it it was a weird thing knowing that's how they viewed the men's side and the women's side of their team for me figuring out what do I got to do what did you need out of Des why did you not think Des was worth it and so I tried so many things I mean from starting discgolfforwomen.com, trying to get more women playing to make it seem more valuable to be a female competitor in the Mm -hmm. sport, to always be an ambassador for women playing the sport. You know, I was doing all this extra stuff, hoping that they would pay more attention and realize that I am a value to the team. 
I'd won three world titles, so many national titles, player of the year, all this stuff. But I still felt like I needed to do more because I wasn't getting what I felt like I deserved or what they were giving the men's side. So that was a constant battle. And the behind the scenes was, you know, well, because we didn't give Des a disc after her third world title, we can't give you one. And so that's the kind of thing that they were leaning on with that third world title win. So whatever that means, whatever. And so from then, I'm going, okay, well, I guess I got to win my fourth world title. And it took years. And, you know, it's already hard enough. It's already so difficult to get yourself in that position. And then imagine having that added pressure of this is what this could mean. And I know a lot of people say, yeah, but I have a disc with your name on it. I have actually boxes right here, Hmm. (laughs) hundreds of discs with my name on it. But these are just special limited, you know, 100 discs that they would give us. We would have to sell and then we could use that money to fund our next year, you know, gas money, food money, whatever. Yeah. Uh, But what I wanted was that acknowledgement of putting my name on a disc that was in their inventory yeah this is the jk avr this is the exactly avery destroyer in 2009 like those things yeah of course yes exactly yeah something where any disc uh retail shop could buy this disc because that is the mold it's the valerie jenkins starfire we're gonna buy that put it on our shelves and that's how we support these players i made more money on these limited runs but The recognition from people all around the world from a signature disc is is really what I wanted. I wanted that acknowledgement as we've seen, you know, Climo Rocks and the Climo AVRs. And that's that's it. That's how you know you've made it. And so that's what I wanted. That was what I'd seen all the men get. And that is what I felt like the women deserved, too. It was just the hardest thing of falling short. Because there were countless world titles of a matter of like a stroke or two. I mean, 2012, Sarah Hoka makes the final putt. I'm right there, a stroke behind. Yeah. There's so many, there were so many moments. Totally. You know, the whole year can pass, but it was one tournament that mattered for me and my future and what I wanted. And it was just the most heartbreaking thing. I can't even tell you how many days and nights you know, I spent awake thinking about those putts or the shots or the, you know, mm. being just as close. Uh, and then finally it all happened in 2016. Yeah. That's a long time. Yeah. And I can only imagine how tough that was. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, knowing that that is what, that is all they were asking for that I had to just win my fourth world title and it would happen. And that was, that was the conversation and it seemed pretty cut and dry and it hurt every year that I couldn't make it happen. And so I found different ways to allow them to support me to where I felt proud to be on their team. And so we'd negotiate Mm -hmm. things that were specific to how I committed my life to traveling and, and the tournaments that I wanted to go to. And so leading into that year, of the agreements that we had worked years to come up with. And, you know, I'm still traveling. I'm still doing all this. 
they had taken away one of the huge bonus structures that I had negotiated with them. And it was of just getting paid the same bonus structure as the men. Hmm. It wasn't anything extraordinary. It was the same exact structure that they offered to all the men on their team. And they did not want to do that anymore. And so I felt like I'd fought so hard to make these small little successes and triumphs in my off the books kind of thing. And then all of a sudden they said, nah, we're not going to do that for you this year. And so that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And I said, you know, I've put up with a lot of crap and it literally took me until it was probably like February that year. You know, I'm trying to think of what am I going to do? Am I going to switch sponsors? No, it's too late. I don't know where I could go. So I said, all right, I think it's bullshit that you're not giving me this, but I'm going to be, I'll take your sponsorship this year. You know, I won't talk badly about you guys. We'll continue our relationship through this year. And then at the end of the year, we're done. So it wasn't an easy year. Um, but it kind of took the pressure off of me trying to prove myself to somebody else. Hmm. And I'd rather focus on just continuing to win for myself without those pressures. All that didn't matter anymore. And so I think that's what really helped me in 2016 in the world championships. I was right there in the hunt for most of the week. I was never in the lead at any point. And then we had the final nine holes come down to it craziness happened but I was so locked in from that very first hole like Hmm. there was nothing stopping me like these ladies had to play out of their mind if they were going to try and beat me and so it was like okay there was crazy hole that happened they threw out of bounds a bunch of times Katrina and Paige and then all of a sudden that's when I just saw the door and I just kept running it sounds like in many ways at that point you you kind of decided, all right, if you're not going to do it for me, I'll take matters into my own hands. Yeah. Is that kind of what that felt like? And and what then happened with that new mindset? Yeah, it, it felt like, you know, I'd been trying so hard to fight for the rights and the things that I deserved, but it didn't make a difference. It didn't matter. So it was like, all right, let's do away with that. That is just something that I'm I'm putting too much emphasis on anyways, and it's taken away from me enjoying the moment that I was in, how well I Mm -hmm. had been playing. And I think that kind of, it ruined a lot of years of my life, knowing that I was at the top of my game, but to a certain group of people, they didn't care. And they, for me, it felt like they were the most important people, my sponsors, the people that support me, and they didn't care. And so that was, yeah, it, it really, it was nice to have that pressure just put aside. But so now this weird thing's going on in my head of, all right, well, shit, I just did it. I just won my fourth world title. I did exactly what they wanted out of me, what they said, what they, you know, dangled in front of me all those years. And so I thought, okay, well, what disc is it going to be? And the Starfire was always something that was a disc that I always threw. It's a disc that I loved. I remember even probably back in 2007 when they came out, I distinctly remember telling Des Redding, I go, Des, whatever you do, 
I am going to get my name on a pro starfire. <laughs> and I'm sure Des is, you know, grumbling inside going, yeah, yeah. Okay, kid. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see what you can do. Yeah. Um, but I remember talking about that and like how cool that would be. But that was so, so many years had passed. And in 2016, it was the star turn that actually won me the title. And that was the disc that I hmm. finally felt confident in throwing a distance driver. And I was like, all right. Yeah. I took some time, thought about it. And I was like, all right, that's the disc that I want. And that's the disc that I can be proud to tell people to throw and have Absolutely. my name on it. And how cool. Yeah. And it was something that I had been hearing for years of why more women's names aren't on discs is that people won't buy a disc with a woman's name on it. And that is the same exact answer they gave me after my fourth world title when I asked to put my name on a star turn. And so at the the height of my career, the best thing I've ever done, coming back after so many years of not winning a world title, finally here, you can have whatever you want. I mean, no, you can't. You have to choose this disc. And so I said, all right, whatever. Put my name on the Starfire. I am officially done with you guys. Yeah. The relationship was just completely ruined. I sometimes have a hard time doing a podcast when I'm having these conversations because I just want to be in it with you and just be like, golly, come on. Such a slap in the face. You were deserving after your first world title. You were deserving before your first world title. Thank you. I just couldn't keep going without saying women's disc golf is where it is today in large part because of you speaking up. It's inspiring to say the least. So thank you for being willing to go there. Yeah, of course. And I have to give credit because of my mom. My mom is the reason that I am outspoken about things like this because she's the one that was behind the scenes and was outspoken for so many things. When I started playing really well, you know, the men would always have their, the little leaderboard that was like, the cool thing mm. you having the guy walk around with yeah. the leaderboard and always the men's division would always have that and then they wouldn't have somebody walk around with the women and my mom's like what is mm. going on like these are the two premium wow. divisions that you're offering you need to give them both credit you need to give them both the stage and so she was always the one speaking up writing emails to the pga calling up whoever she needed to call up same with any kind of video coverage Incredible. i know there weren't a lot of people out there with cameras yeah. but if there was coverage from the men she was the one speaking up going there was no coverage of the women like can't we get anybody out there making things yeah. equal why do we have separate divisions why are we even promoting two divisions if they're not getting the same kind of credit for being out there and, yeah. and spending all the money to travel and and be a top professional so it was always my mom that Dang. was the the woman going, this isn't right. Hello, is anybody watching? <laughs> and so I feel wow. like I really got that from her. Of, you got to speak up for it. Otherwise, nothing's going to happen. Well, something did happen. When we come back, Valerie takes matters into her own hands and becomes one of the biggest advocates our sport has ever seen. Hey, really quickly, I just want to say thanks for listening to and supporting the show. Patent pending was an idea that both Jomez and I couldn't let go of. So to have all of you respond the way you have means so much. From listening to this episode to kind-hearted reviews, 
to over 40,000 listens in 65 different countries already, it really just blows us away. So thank you. If you want to continue to support the show and make more episodes possible, you can leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts or snag a patent pending tee available at jomezpro.com. I'm not going to lie, I'm wearing the shirt right now and it might just be the comfiest thing I've ever worn. And sure, I'm biased, but still. So grab a t-shirt to support the show today at jomezpro.com or click the link in the show notes. And seriously, for everything from listening to buying a shirt, we can't thank you enough. Oh, and one more thing. In every episode so far, I've introduced myself as Jesse from Trash Panda, but I've never explained what Trash Panda is. So, if you don't already know, I run a company called Trash Panda Disc Golf that focuses on the future of disc golf every single day. For two years, we've been working to bring the first ever discs made from 100% recycled plastic to our sport. And I'm stoked to say that our worldwide release is coming up on Monday, November 7th. If you're interested in learning more, you can check us out at trashpandadiscgolf.com or just look up Trash Panda on YouTube. We'd love to have you join us in growing the sport sustainably. Welcome back to the show. If you've made it this far, then I don't have to tell you that Valerie Jenkins has grit. She's tough, persistent, and willing to do whatever it takes. So while others were making her feel like she was unworthy, she turned and devoted her time and energy to making others feel worthy. And I literally just get chills thinking about that. I mean, how easy would it have been to give up on her career? To just throw in the towel on the sport in general? Well, Valerie did the opposite. And as you'll hear in the second half of our conversation, she became an advocate for women around the world. And it all started with one of her other sponsors, a shoe company. We were sponsored by Keen Footwear. Let's start there. So Keen, of course, gave us amazing shoes to play disc golf in, but they always wanted to do something bigger. And so every year they would give each of the ambassadors 50 discs. And you can see a trend here. 50 discs, you sell the discs. But instead of that money going to our touring fund, we had to choose a charity to donate that money to. So every year we'd raise $1,000 and we'd have to find a disc golf organization that we'd want to donate the money to to help them continue on with whatever their vision was. Back in 2010, 11, nothing existed. There was nothing supporting women's disc golf. And so that's kind of where I was like, all right, well, this is kind of weird, but I'm going to have to make the organization that I'm going to put my $1,000 in. <laughs> and so that was uh, creating the website Disc Golf for Women and basically just creating a resource that women can come to come for information, come to discuss, you know, some struggles that they're going through to figure out how to get better at their game, all sorts of things. So basically just a resource for women in the sport. And then from there, I created the group Disc Golf for Women on Facebook. And that's where things kind of really took off. It's easier to communicate with people around the world on this Facebook group. And so I thought that was a really interesting way that it branched out. But yeah, that's how it kind of all started. And then from there, because I was one of the first people to do something like that, the PDGA reached out to me and it was Rebecca Duffy in specifically who wanted to jumpstart the PDGA Women's Committee. So this is in 2011. And she goes, all right, you're going to be the chairwoman of the PDGA Women's Committee. And I'm going, okay, I don't really know what that means exactly, but 
I guess I better start coming up with a committee. I collected a couple of women from across the country, women that I knew were doing good stuff, starting women's leagues and encouraging women in their area. And so brought those women together and Mm. we all came up with the idea for the PDGA Women's Global Event. For so many years, you you weren't pushing for more. You were pushing for equity. Mm-hmm. And to see, I mean, this this episode is going to come out right after the Pro Tour Championship. To see equal payouts, to see the equity at that point, how does that make you feel now? It's It's insane to even see paychecks like that for our sport, but to have them for both the men and women is... I do feel like that is a symbol of that we've made it to have the disc golf pro tour step up to that level. I mean, that is, that's massive. That is life changing kind of money for these, these players that sometimes Mm -hmm. are scraping by to get to the next tournament. You know, not all of them have these incredible sponsorships or, you know, relationships that feed their drive throughout the season. But that big paycheck at the end of the year is huge. And I always said, because it was a weird thing to me because I'm traveling, I'm I'm paying the same entry fees as my brother, Nate. And it wasn't my fault that there was only two competitors or there was, you know, not as many competitors in my division. But I was still spending Mm -hmm. a week at that place you know, paying for the food, paying for lodging, paying the entry fees, all the things. The expenses are still the same amount. The effort is still exactly the same, but it was always that huge difference of the paycheck at the end of the day, no matter how hard you worked. You could work equally as hard, you pay the same amount, and then at the end of the week, it was like, all right, yep, a couple hundred bucks, move on. So to have it now where it's equal pay for the equal amount of work. Uh, I think that's just, it's remarkable. And it's incredible that we now are at a level where there are these outside companies looking in on the sport of disc golf and wanting to invest at such a high level. Well, you mentioned the, like being an athlete, but really it's also being a pioneer. And I don't use that word lightly because the, the impact you've had is very clear to, to so many. I'm just curious with, with being a pioneer, like, You've done so much for the sport. Do you still feel a level of responsibility to the sport or have you, have you done your job? Have you done it? Definitely still feel that responsibility just for the fact of now we're in this new generation of having every tournament with live coverage. It's the reason that I signed on for that. It's the reason that I agreed to do it along with Nate. Mm. But in 2018, we scheduled a phone call with Steve Dodge with his big, grand, scheming idea of having this live broadcast and creating the Disc Golf Network and creating the Disc Golf Pro Tour. And he asked if we would support him in it. And so we're like, okay, well, we're literally in construction clothes. We just tore down some walls inside this building that we're going to build our brewery. Converting your tour van to your brewery van. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. We're changing our lives from touring disc golfer to business owners. We've got shareholders and loans and we've got a lot on our plate, but we will find time to give it back to disc golf and 
and support what you're doing, Steve, and, and do whatever we can. But hmm. we can't do it together. It's either Nate doing one show or I'm doing another show. That's all we can offer. Fast forward to like a week before the tour starts. Everybody that had signed on to support Steve kind of jumped ship. And oh. it was just Nate and I. And we said, all right, well, I guess we're doing every show together. And we literally did every single show together. Wow. Spending eight hours a day, you know, sometimes three days, sometimes four days, talking about disc golf just to make sure that the show could still go on. There was nobody else. We didn't get paid that first year. We didn't know what the heck we were doing. The shows <laughs> were horrible. <laughs> there was a lot of learning that we did in that first year, but there was still a solid group of amazing, talented mm. people. There just weren't a lot of us. After that first year, I'm like, okay, I could be done with this. Like, it doesn't matter to me. Like, people are hating on us. Maybe this is the mm. end of our career. Like, maybe we should just walk away. But the thing that kept me going was the fact that Steve showed the women and the fact that he wanted to put women on this stage and I was chosen as the person to represent the women and tell people how incredible these athletes are and, you know, the shots, they're incredible shots and the strategy and, and to document these big wins. That was amazing. And so that's kind of what has kept me in the seat for now going on our fifth year next year. Uh, it's kind of crazy, but crazy. yeah, I, I, again, it all relies on, you have to do it. There has to be that somebody. And uh, I'm thankful to have the opportunity to be that somebody. But I really feel like it's an important thing to do. And I'm glad that we're still involved with the sport in this aspect. Thinking back to a young Val who is somewhat rebellious with disc golf and growing up in a disc golf family at a time where that really wasn't a thing. And then thinking about the kids who might be growing up in disc golf now whether it's through the work of Uplay or another organization that's introducing them in schools, or even kids who are introduced by their parents who are just playing because they grew up in a household where going out to play disc golf was a thing and a very normal thing at that. And then the kid on top of that who looks at disc golf quite, con quite the opposite to your guidance counselor in high school, but as a viable like profession. What would you say to those kids who are growing up in the sport today. I think that opportunity is there. It's amazing to see the people that are at the top of the sport now are people that they were who Nate and I were competing against. It's not that long ago that we were on the road competing at the same level as these people. But just this with COVID, the pandemic happening, the boom of disc golf, things have just catapulted. And now the opportunity is there. There's so many more people playing. There's more money than there's ever been in the sport. There's more eyes on the sport. There's, you know, these players that are now focused on their social media accounts, you know, just as much as they're focused on playing their rounds of disc golf. Yeah. And I think it's because disc golf is so accessible. I think it's available to anybody that if you want to put in the time and you want to be a world champion or an amazing athlete in the sport, it's right there and it is still so easily accessible for anybody to jump on board, jump on the tour and make something of, their, of themselves. I don't know of any other sport where it's 
just that easy to get into and yeah to have a group that is still so welcoming of people that can still share this in our eyes it's still small but to share this kind of family-like environment with other people i think that's yeah disc golf it's it's still that amazing sport that we love because it's so small but it is getting bigger but there's room for everybody that's four-time world champ and one of disc golf's greatest advocates valerie jenkins nowadays you can find her commentating for the disc golf network or running a brewery she started with her partner nate called bevel brewing in bend oregon the brewery is literally a disc golfer's dream it's named after the beveled edge discs we all know and love and val has the unique role of naming every single one of their beers for myself or any of our listeners who might find themselves in Bend and coming through Bevel, what's the one beer we just absolutely mm. have to try? Because our brewery is small, we change our tap list all the time, but you can always find First Run IPA. Um, it's the first beer that we ever brewed on our system. It was a recipe that we brewed the most when we were doing our homebrew batches. And so that's, that's it. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. Patent Pending is presented by Jomez Pro and made possible by Jomez's Patreon community. If you want to follow us on Instagram, we are at Patent Pending Show. And if you want to contact the team, our email address is patentpendingshow at jomezpro.com. This episode was produced by Andy Padula with music composed by Starframe. I'm Jesse from Trash Panda, and you've been listening to Patent Pending. <laughs>